Your Space Coast vacation is preparing for liftoff. Start counting down now. 10, 9, 8, 7, it's time for a beach vacay that feels like heaven. 6, 5, 4, come explore Melbourne and the beaches. 3, 2, 1, it's time for some rocket-filled fun. Count down to your best beach vacation ever on Florida's Space Coast. Launch your planning now at visitspacecoast.com. Sometimes it takes a different approach to help you unlock your true potential. Capella University's game-changing FlexPath format helps you learn at your own pace and fit earning a degree into your life. From before you enroll to after you graduate, you'll be supported by people who are invested in your success so you can pursue your goals knowing that help is available if you need it. Imagine your future differently at capella.edu. James Altucher sitting in this week for both Porter Stansberry and Aaron Brabham, who are both in Singapore for our annual Alliance Members Conference. You know, I don't know why I actually wasn't invited to Singapore. I'm sitting here at home in the rain doing this radio episode for them so they could live it up in Singapore. But that said, I'm happy to be here because my guest today is an old friend of mine, Greg Zuckerman. Greg is a writer for the Wall Street Journal. I guess, Greg, I've known you for about eight years, I think, something like that. Exactly, yeah. We both uh, are in the same uh, sort of world, <laughs> that kind of Wall Street investment type world, or you used to be anyway. Yes, and, and I remember on your so, – so Greg's – we're going to talk about Greg's book, uh, The Frackers. Uh, but first, I want to mention Greg's last book, which was called The Greatest Trade Ever, the behind-the-scenes story of how John Paulson defied Wall Street and made financial history. And that book was a New York Times bestseller. And I want to mention my, my private theory about why that was a bestseller. It was because uh, I believe it was page 236. I'm actually mentioned in the book. And I'm mentioned because I actually – turned down investing in John Paulson's hedge fund right before he went up 600% in a year. So I made pro- and 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 Greg Zuckerman the author was 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 kind enough to point out that I probably made the stupidest investment decision in history. So thank you very much Greg for that. You, you uh, weren't the only one though. Yes, I wasn't the only one. It, it was it was very hard to make that, that that investment in him because he was losing money every month and then suddenly he was up 600% once the housing crisis uh, collapsed. So, but what we really want to talk about now is uh, a topic near and dear to my heart is his latest book, The Frackers, the outrageous inside story of the new billionaire wildcatters. And I just want to mention, I've read this book. This book, I highly recommend it. It is the Bible if you want to learn about the whole history of fracking and even oil drilling in the United States. But in particular, you know, the United States was was given up for dead with, with when peak oil theory was popularized in the 70s. Nobody thought we were going to have any oil or gas or anything, any kind of drilling at all, really, coming out of the United States. Greg shows the inside story of what's happened since then. These guys who risked it all to drill into rock 15, 20,000 feet below the surface and actually bring out oil. And now, Greg, what's the stats now in terms of how much how much oil do we get from OPEC as opposed to how much oil we create for ourselves? 
So we produce about 8 million barrels a day. That's up from about 5 uh, in 2005. And we're really surging even in the past year or so. Um, even the optimists have been surprised by the increase. We were about 7 or so a year ago. And uh, we're down to about 8% of our energy, of our crude, coming from the Middle East, which, uh, you know, is a remarkable turnaround for anyone who has any gray hair on them and remembers the time when we were scared, we were worried as a nation that we were running out of both oil and natural gas, and all the experts said uh, we were doomed to depend on people that we don't really like so much. Um, and now we've got energy uh, security, and it's going to change geopolitics and already is changing the nation's uh, economy. Well, so, so at, our, at our peak disadvantage, how much were we uh, importing from uh, you know, OPEC nations? Oh, it was over 20%. Um, and again, these were people that we didn't really want to be sending all that money to um, Venezuela, Saudi Arabia. Um, so it wasn't just... Middle East, OPEC in general, and obviously they um, had the boycotts uh, in the past, and um, we were, and we've got into to fight to battles. I mean, I've talked in in my book. I talked to uh, generals and, and military experts who acknowledge that at least part of the reason why we got bogged down in places like uh, Iraq and got into to in the first place is uh, due to oil. We've spent a lot of money on that and in lives. Well, and, and I'm sure uh, many listeners remember back in the 70s when you had to wait online with your car for like two, three hours to get a couple gallons of gas. Exactly. I have a vague memory of being in the backseat of my parents and, and, and being on some huge line. And um, to think that things have changed to the point where uh, in 2015 we're going to start exporting natural gas from this country uh, is stunning to me. And Greg, can you talk a little about that story uh, about how we're going to turn into an exporter, particularly of natural gas, when you you talk about uh, Chenier. I, I don't know how to pronounce their name, the the oil company that's exporting. Right, uh, Chenier Energy, um, LNG is the symbol, and uh, Sharif Suki is the brains behind it, and he's an immigrant from Lebanon. And it's funny, a number of people in my book are immigrants. It's a real uh, American story in some ways. A lot of rags-to-riches kind of people are behind this revolution, and um, it gives you, gives, gave me a lot of uh, reassurance about the nation and its future. But, yeah, Chenier Energy, they're going to be the first um, of the lower states to export, uh, likely in 2015. You know, you, you brought them up uh, early in the book, and we were sort of following their story, and it was very different from the other stories you were talking about in the book, the guys who were, uh, you know, wildcatting in the back in shale and so on. And I was trying to figure out how you were going to connect up the story, but then it made sense by the end when we basically see that this guy is not, you know, importing the liquefied natural gas, but he's actually going to be exporting. And what a remarkable turnaround. Like, he, he went from broke to having faith in himself to, I guess, he's on his way to raising $12 billion to do this exporting. Yeah, to me, he's a story of perseverance and an inspiration to me and maybe to others as well, because, as you suggest, he made a huge leveraged bet that all the experts were right, and all the experts were saying that we were running out of natural gas as a country, so he and his company leveraged and borrowed billions of dollars to build these big, huge import terminals 
uh, to bring in natural gas. And then lo and behold, around 2008, when it, while everyone was focused on the housing market collapsing, it, all these shale formations around the country um, started really kicking in and, and, and producing all kinds of natural gas. And Schneer was done, and Suki was done. He was worth over $100 million at one point, and he, at that point, was, wor- was, was worth very little. And then he kind of said, well, okay, here, guys, if we actually, as a nation, are producing all this natural gas, maybe instead of uh, importing all this gas at my terminals, at my company's terminals, we should export it. And at the time, no one was thinking about exporting natural gas. There were a couple of uh, mavericks who, who had the idea. But he got the permits before everybody else, and Exxon and all the experts, all the big companies could have been before him. But he, he got it done, and there, yeah, he's worth about $350 million today. Well, it's interesting because all the time when you're looking at companies, so I'm a, a venture capitalist, an angel investor, and all the time, you know, the big question is, well, if you can do it, why can't just Google compete with you? But the reality is these large companies, they're, they, they operate out of fear. They, whereas this guy was at, operating out of hunger and passion. Like he had to come up with the ideas. He had to pivot his business and he did. And, and not only that, he had to raise $12 billion to get going. Plus, arrange all the deals which he had with his Middle Eastern connections. It was really an inspirational story. That's exactly right. So that's a large theme in my book about how the people you would have thought would have gotten this uh, revolution, been been at the heart and the pioneers of it, weren't the ones, the Shell and Chevron and Exxon. It's very similar in some ways to the financial meltdown because in my last book, I wrote about the people that got it right, that made billions and anticipated the problems, people like John Paulson, who was no mortgage expert. He was a merger arb um, and a few kind of playboy types on California. And it wasn't sort of Alan Greenspan and the heads of the banks. Similarly here, again, Exxon uh, could have bought all this acreage up in the Bakken that Harold Hamm, one of my characters, was selling, and they didn't. Chevron had a group that was pursuing unconventional drilling, and they disbanded it years ago and they made fun of the guys and undermined the guys who were working on it. So, yeah, often it is sort of the upstart, and it happens time and time again. I mean, you look at Microsoft to close down a group that allowed um, that, and, and Google stepped in and, and took the market from them. Yeah, so, so it's interesting. Why didn't the majors recognize what was going on in North Dakota? And by the way, I mean, I'm sure you know the statistic, but the fastest-growing city in the United States is Williston, North Dakota, up from 6,000 people uh, two years ago to 60,000 residents right now. So, so this is where the, the, the biggest shale is. All the guys like Continental, I guess EOG, all the guys you talk about as wildcatting there and taking huge risks. No one believed that could happen. And they're making, they're, they're producing billions of, I guess, cubic feet or barrels of oil or whatever you call it, but they're, they're getting rich off of it. Why didn't the majors do it? And what changed that allowed these smaller guys to do it? So it's a good question. There are a few reasons why. First is everyone is taught in this world, in the energy world, that shale, which is just a type of rock well below the the surface, as much as 14,000 feet below, that shale is a source rock. In other words, there's a lot of oil and gas packed into this shale rock, but it's hard to get it. It's so far down, it's too expensive to go and try to get it. And eventually, it's the source for the oil and gas that eventually makes its way up closer to reservoirs, closer to the surface. But all the way they taught you, the professors in the schools and all the exons of the world, they all said, well, yeah, there's a lot of oil and gas in there, but you can't get it out. 
So that's why Exxon and everybody went offshore. They went to Africa. They went to Asia. And literally, Exxon's headquarters are literally above the Barnett Shale, which is at the heart of this, the, the, the epicenter of this whole uh, revolution. And so the experts were just sort of, and the big guys were just listening to the experts. And, and that was conventional wisdom. So then the question is, well, why did some of the people I write about, uh, George Mitchell, Harold Hamm, and some of the others, bet it all on, on America when the experts said not to? Well, partly because they didn't have a choice. So they were sort of mid-sized and, and smaller producers, and they didn't have offshore resources and acreage and places like Africa and Asia. So they sort of had to make it work, and some of them were in trouble. So a guy I write about, George Mitchell, his company was running out of natural gas. Uh, he had cancer. His wife was sick. Um, the stock was down, and he pushed and pushed and pushed his guys to try to figure out how to hydraulically fracture or frack uh, not, uh, a shale layer in Texas, and eventually um, led to this whole revolution. So sometimes, you know, uh, you have to have your back against the wall to make it work. So he not only did that, he then sold his company and then started again, like in his 80s, buying up and, uh, you know, going at it again, buying up acreage. Yeah, for a lot of these guys, it's not just about making a lot of money. Don't get me wrong. That's probably the, the first goal. Um, they want to really have an impact on the country and on the world, and it's in their blood. They're old-time wildcatters. So, yeah, he had this huge home run in the Barnett Shell, which is in Texas. But then he went around and was one of the first people to bet on acreage in the Marcellus region, um, Pennsylvania, and, and elsewhere. Um, they have a hunger for this stuff, and he passed away over this last summer. But he's going to go down in history as one of the most important Americans because um, he's led to this resurgence, George Mitchell and his team. It's really some un, uh, um, unsung guys who I write about, and I try to give them a um, little bit of limelight. Uh, they're the ones who figured it out, but George Mitchell was at the heart of it, and he pushed them. Uh, and, and if this technique, this fracking and horizontal drilling technique, uh, takes off abroad, which I think is a decent chance in places like China, he's gonna, George Mitchell will be seen as one of the most important Americans in history. So let's, let's talk about some of the companies that are doing it now and what's going on now. So what, when's... You know, when's the, the, the back in shale done? Like, when do, they, when do they stop drilling there and move to other places? When will it be depleted? Well, it depends who you ask. So there are skeptics out there who say, okay, shale produces a lot of oil and gas, but it's notorious for um, running off quickly, for the depletion, for having um, have production slows down very rapidly by its nature, shale. And they say, you know, this, this revolution is not going to last that long, this resurgence. And I would argue that, well, first of all, they've been saying that for the last few years, and they've been wrong. Second of all, when you talk to people in the fields, there's remarkable innovation going on. And America gets criticized left and right for not innovating. You talk to guys like Peter Thiel and, and other people. People, you know, sort of common wisdom now, oh, uh, we don't innovate. You get out of away from the coast, the two coasts, and you see what's happening in, in middle America, and it's really impressive. I mean, I traveled the country to all these different places, and they're finding new layers of, of shale and other kinds of rock packed with oil and gas. So uh, you mentioned the Bakken area. When's it going to run out? It's hard to tell because people like Harold Hamm have found a new layer. It's called uh, the Three Forks uh, a couple years ago, and they're very optimistic there in Oklahoma they've recently found a new layer. Uh, there's one um, in California people are excited about and some other places around the country. So it's hard to tell because they keep doing more with less. They become efficient. Well, what about uh, the Mississippi Lime area? I think the news yesterday was Sandridge is uh, going to spend another $350 million buying up uh, acres and, and drilling there. 
Um, yeah, that's a little less uh, likely to lead to a lot of oil, maybe more gas. But but yeah, it could be. They've been they've been excited about that for a little while. So um, it, that's another promise. And there are lots of interesting ones around the country. It's, America um, has more prospects than people would have thought. And and also, it's not only the fact that we're finding more places to drill, but our drilling techniques are getting uh, better. So you described throughout your book kind of almost this evolution of fracking technology, and it's it's just going to get better. Like, what do you see as the latest changes in fracking technology? Well, they're able to tap different formations or layers. It's, you got to think of these things as sort of like uh, – like um, a sort of a Oreo cookie with different layers. So they're able to tap different layers of, of rock um, with one drilling pad, which is pretty impressive. So you drill down, and then you turn it horizontally, which is a, a revolution in and of itself, perfected over the last couple decades or so. And they're doing that in a few different ways, a few different layers uh, under the ground, which is interesting. And, uh, uh, you know, I was talking to one oil executive recently. They're looking into um, having really strong vacuums attached to their uh, uh, fracking tools so they can vacuum up the oil once they fracture the rock. I don't know if you looked into that at all. I haven't in that, but to me, a lot of the emphasis now, and it should be, is on making it more environmentally sound. So they're doing things like trying to uh, frack without all the chemicals, um, maybe or fewer chemicals, using um, less fresh water. Obviously, these uh, wells take a lot of fresh water, about 5 million uh, gallons per well. So if we can reduce some of our um, water usage, that'll be very comforting and, and helpful. Um, and they're trying to do things a little better and not to spill as much. And the casing is trying to get better. And the cement casings, which are the key to this whole thing, fracking can be done safely, but it often isn't. And often it's because of um, mistakes in, in, in this kind of cementing and the casing. So they're improving on that kind of stuff as well. Well, without the water, too, uh, it'll become cheaper. That's true. That's true. Um, and they are. it is getting much cheaper to get oil and gas out. I mean, when you talk about the stock, some places, some companies like EOG and Continental and Pioneer already have soared. They're among the best um, uh, performing stocks over the past year or so. Everyone's focused on the tech stocks, but um, Continental and EOG. EOG is worth more. Uh, most people have never heard of it, but EOG is worth more than Hershey's, uh, Southwest Airlines, and Alcoa combined. And they keep in, in improving the way they're drilling. So yeah, EOG looks like a straight up line. Yes. Um, and there's some other interesting ones, like a Pioneer and uh, Continental Resources. I mean, Continental Resources is a fascinating one because, and I write a lot about them, they are started by a, company, by a guy named Harold Hamm. Um, and I can talk about him for a little bit. He's just a, a remarkable rags-to-riches story. Yeah, sure. Tell us uh, tell us the story because I think you, you describe it well in the book. And I think he was the one who probably – didn't have the same kind of charisma as the Chesapeake guys, but still was able to uh, plow forward. Yeah, Harold Ham grew up dirt poor in a little town in Oklahoma. He couldn't even go to school until around Christmas time each year because he had to help his parents who were sharecroppers in the fields, and he was picking cotton, watermelon, things like that. Uh, and only around Christmas time was it so cold that he could go to school. Uh, he didn't have a 
pair of new shoes till he was about five or six years of age because uh, they were so poor. And finally, his, his uh, little shack of a home burned down, and neighbors chipped in and, and bought him a new pair of shoes. It became sort of a, a, a positive experience, unfortunately, for him. And he never went to college, didn't have geology or, or drilling backgrounds or engineering, uh, but he had this hunger, this sort of old-time hunger to find oil. And he started out just sort of cleaning tanks, oil tankers, climbing in with a big broom and cleaning out the muck at the bottom of it. That was his company. He started a business doing that. And, but then he started releasing acreage and trying his luck as a wildcatter, and he did pretty well in Oklahoma. Then he take, took this big, huge major bet on North Dakota. And First, they were working on the Montana side, actually, of the border. And then one of his guys, Brian Hoffman, said, you know what? Um, yeah, we're pretty successful here, but let's try North Dakota. We think it could be even better. And I write about that experience. And they worked on it, and they played with it, and they tweaked it. And they were they had to fire people and cut salaries, and they, had, they were looking to sell the acreage as late as about 2006 because it was not working. But they kept plugging away. It was sort of a story of American perseverance and persistence and stubbornness. And uh, they made it work, and now it's flown with oil. And today, Harold Ham is worth about $14.5 billion. He actually is worth about $2 billion more than when I just went to print with my book in uh, August. And um, he's so wealthy that he's going through a divorce, unfortunately, but his wife is going to walk away with more money than Oprah Winfrey. So, uh, he's, again, it's a real rags to riches story. And when you were hanging out with him, like I assume you interviewed him a lot for this book, what was he like personally? Um, he's an interesting guy. A lot of a lot of guys are quirky in my book and gray characters. I try, I tend to like to write about oh, gray characters. Um, they're, they're stubborn. They're they're um, uh, mavericks in some ways. They ignore the conventional wisdom. So there's a lot of things admirable about them too. Also, you know, Harold Ham uh, despises President Obama, which um, I think is a little bit uh, overboard, given that he's made about. 10 or $11 billion during his administration. Um, so, you know, a lot of these guys have these real passions uh, for, for money, for fame, for changing the country. A remarkable number of them actually talked about energy independence early on within their companies. And it sounds kind of corny, but they believed they were doing something really good for the country and well for themselves. So they wanted to be rich and famous, but they also wanted to help us move towards energy security. So, so Greg, while I'm reading this book, you're such a great writer. You, you write, you take, you're taking all these topics like fracking for oil, and you know all these guys who I don't really relate to at all. Like I'm, you know, I didn't grow up in Oklahoma or, you know, spend any time on oil rigs or anything. But you write it in this, you write your book in this very page turner fashion. Like, uh, you know, in one case, I'm reading the end of one chapter. Uh, soon. Uh, Dimmick's residents and their growing concerns would be heard around the world. And that was the end of a chapter. Like you kept us going, you know, for each chapter as if it was like a page turner, like everything could be won and lost on every single chapter. How long did it take you to write the book? First off, thank you so much. I worked hard on it. So, um, and I believe in the story. I think it's the most important thing going on in American business today. So I'm on the East Coast and you meet young people coming out of college, and it's very discouraging. They can't find work, or they went to good schools, and they're in debt. And then you drive to places like North Dakota, as you mentioned, Williston, which I spent a lot of time in, and it's like a gold rush. And it's not to say it's all positive. Um, if you don't own a home, if you rent a home, real estate's skyrocketing. There's more crime. It's kind of dirty. And um, so many places, it's, it's remote, either cold or, or really hot. Um, 
And um, so, but, but it reassured me a lot about the, the future of this country. I met young people who are getting jobs and making over $100,000 in the fields, or people with a lot of debt who got in the car and just drove to, to Williston instead of being on unemployment. Um, so I, th- I found there was a lot of um, drama in the story, and I tried to convey that. So I spent about two years on the whole thing. I um, traveled to Louisiana and, and Pennsylvania and North Dakota, Texas, um, Oklahoma, and I, I got to meet all these people, and it was a real honor and, uh, and, a, and a pleasure to um, be able to talk about not just the kind of billionaires that I write about or the guys who blew it, who had billions and then kind of blew it, but the, the people that worked for them and didn't make that much. Unlike a Wall Street trader, I'm used to kind of hedge fund guys who, when they come up with a great idea, they get rewarded, they make millions. But some of these engineers and geologists uh, working within the companies came up with, with innovations and ideas that are changing the country, but they're not making that much. So in my book, I tried to tell their story. So so what's next? Like, Continental has made its run. Maybe it'll go more, you know, maybe not. We don't know. What what kind of smaller companies are you seeing out there that could be uh, the next Continental, the next EOG, the next Sandridge? Well, part of the problem now is that a lot of the acreage has been leased up. It's pretty much all been uh, leased up, the stuff that people are excited about. And you've had people like Exxon and Chevron race back to America. Now they're convinced because uh, of these pioneers. Now they're convinced that this country does hold a lot of oil and gas. So they've actually spent too much. People like Chevron and she- and and Exxon in terms of buying companies and and acreage in the last few years. So it's a little harder for the upstart today. Um, that said, you know companies like uh, Pioneer. I mentioned them um, earlier. They're midsize still. Stock has soared. People think. They're a little bit like a tech kind of company, like a LinkedIn or a or a Twitter, where they're very expensive based on current earnings and cash flow. But if you believe that some of the acreage that they're holding, there's an area called the Permian Basin um, in Texas, which is old school Midland, Texas, way back when they, they were producing it. But they're going back. Guys like uh, companies like Pioneer are going back and using horizontal drilling to get at layers that they never could. The companies never could before, and it's exciting stuff. So if you believe in that and you believe in this era, and I do, then companies like Pioneer will continue to do well. And again, EOG and Continental as well, they're still finding new, new layers and new ways to uh, tap these formations. So, so once, once the U.S. really is energy independent, uh, what happens inside Saudi Arabia and some of these other countries? Like, how, do, how will they make money? How will they survive? Not that we, you know, we care more about us than, than them, but, but what's going to happen there? Well, it's a really good question, and there aren't great answers right now. I talk to people down in D.C. and ex-generals, and people are starting to figure this stuff out or think about them anyway. The whole geopolitical implications are remarkable. So maybe that means we as a country can cut back on our resource, on our spending uh, on military, and maybe we don't have to be in the Middle East as much because we don't depend as much there. So therefore, we pull back a little bit. Maybe we will. Um, but and, and part of the reason why we don't care what Saudi Arabia thinks of us 
uh, lately. We don't. We, we've ignored um, their encouragement in terms of uh, getting into Syria and and confronting Iran. And I'm not saying good or bad. I'm, I'm just stating the fact that we don't care as much about what Saudi Arabia thinks, and maybe China is going to have to get more involved. Now, do we want that or not? China still is very reliant on Middle East energy. Do we want them to build their military and to become a little more uh, involved and spend more money on Middle East? Um, maybe we do, maybe we don't. There are all kinds of remarkable implications. And then other people have their own shell uh, formations, China, Argentina, Mexico, Poland. They're all trying to make it work there. There are reasons to think that they won't be able to catch up to us for a little while. We've got uh, profit motive in this country, uh, getting really rich and famous inspires people. So they don't have that as much as some other countries. Other countries don't allow their their individual landowners to own their own mineral rights. So it's hard to work out deals like Aubrey McClendon and Tom Ward raced around the country leasing up land from individuals and and, and farm owners, etc. But you can't do that in other places like China. Um, the geology is tougher in some of these places. They don't have the same access to, to fresh water and infrastructure. And they don't have the capital markets that we do. So the reasons to think that it's going to give America an economic advantage for years. We pay right now natural gas costs that are about a half to a third what they are in Europe uh, and Asia. And um, I think it's going to give us a real leg up on, on our competitors for years. Well, what could happen to oil prices? Like, let's say we continue to find all this oil and, and natural gas. Could oil prices uh, plummet if supply gets too great and demand doesn't change? So natural gas and oil are very different. Natural gas is a very domestic market, and that's why all ga- I'm sorry, natural gas prices have tumbled about 72 percent since uh, 2008. Uh, we all are paying less to heat our homes and cool our homes, etc. But so that's because it's a natural gas is a, is a domestic market. Dem- supply and demand uh, is, is key here. American supply and demand. When it comes to oil, it's a global market. So we are producing much more in the way of oil. As I said, five million barrels a day to 8 million barrels, but other people like Iran aren't producing nearly as much as they used to. Uh, We're boycotting them. Um, So um, it has helped. Our surge, our resurgence in production has helped put a lid on global oil prices. So they're about $100 or $95 per barrel, and that's what they've been for the last year or so, despite the fact that there's been fighting going on incessantly in Syria and other kinds of places, and there's the uh, back and forth with Iran. You would have thought that oil would have moved a little bit more. So I believe it's keeping a lid on things. And you ask about the future of Saudi Arabia. It's a good question. I mean, they still have a lot of oil. We're going to pass them in terms of oil production in the next few years. But that's mostly because they could be producing more, but uh, they don't want to be flooding the market and they depend on high prices. They're a fascinating uh, country because their youth population is growing and they need the oil revenues. And if countries like Argentina and Mexico uh, can tap some of their own oil shell formations, and if Iraq, Iraq is a real wild card. They've got huge amounts of oil that we obviously haven't been able to access. If they can finally do that, you have some peace there, then yeah, oil prices will come down. That will be enough in addition to our production. And it'll hurt people like um, Saudi Arabia and and Russia as well. Russia's a huge energy power. It's going to change geopolitics, and we're we're still just trying to figure out uh, the implications of this American uh, energy resurgence that I write about in my book. 
And let me let me ask one final question about the environmental uh, situation. So you talked about the water and the chemicals and so on. But in your book, you also mention uh, the methane gas that's released, too, when when you're bringing up oil from the ground. How um, is this a real environmental issue or and how are companies going to handle it in the future? So there are three issues when it comes to um, environmental concerns that I think are overstated. Uh, One is the concern that chemicals are going to get into the water system. That's very unlikely. Shell is very low. If you talk to scientists, objective scientists, they say it's very unlikely that the chemicals from 14,000 feet, as much as 14,000 feet below the surface, are going to get into our reservoirs about 400 feet or so in some places. Um, People worry about turning on their faucets and methane coming in and blowing things up like in the movie Gasland, and that's really unlikely as well. That does happen, but it's not from fracking often, or usually. Uh, It's usually in places in this country where methane just happens to naturally get into the water system, and it always has. There are three towns in this country called Burning Springs. So it's been happening for years. American Indians used to light water on fire. There were old-timers I I met in Pennsylvania as a trick when they were in school. They used to turn the faucet on and light it and run (laughs) in school. So um, that's been happening um, now. naturally for for a long time. And the third is the earthquake concern, and that a little bit is overstated. You talk to scientists as well, that can be handled. They can do testing before they uh, do this thing, and it's not necessarily because of fracking, and these are really tremors, not earthquakes. That all said, there are big, huge issues when it comes to the environmental dangers of drilling. Um, they spill all the time, they leak. Um, a lot of it's the casing, as I mentioned earlier, and they've got to improve on that. So the key reason why natural gas is better than coal, um, and it is a lot better than coal, um, is only if in the production you don't release too much methane, as you had uh, alluded to. And methane is a greenhouse gas, a powerful greenhouse gas. So right now, the latest research from academics and for private industry is that in the production of natural gas through fracking, you don't release so much methane that it makes it worse than coal. So in other words, natural gas is better than coal, and as a result, our carbon dioxide emissions in this country are down about 12% in the last few years. We're at the lowest levels since 1994. Um, but it's not 100% sure. The EPA, for some reason, doesn't test uh, methane emissions with na- natural gas production. I'm not sure why. So hopefully they'll, they'll uh, get to the bottom of that. Okay, well, Greg, uh, you're the author of The Frackers, the outrageous inside story of the new billionaire Wildcatters. Great book. I highly recommend it. Like I said before, I really think it's the Bible describing what what fracking is and what's been going on in this country with fracking and, and drilling and so on. You're a writer and reporter for The Wall Street Journal. Uh, and I really appreciate having you on the show. Like, thanks. Thanks very much. That was a lot of fun. Thank you very much. So that was a fascinating interview with Greg Zuckerman about the frackers. And it kind of segues into the more amazing news of what's happening today, which is that the market is at all time highs. The S&P 500 is over 1800. The Dow is over 16,000. The Nasdaq is honing in on 4000. I mean, the question is, is this crazy? Are we hitting bubble territory? Is the economy going to fail? What's going to happen next? So let me tell you, we are in a tale of two economies. So A, you should be scared because the entire middle class is, is dying. And that's, we, we've, we've all been led astray by the government, by education, by corporatism, by corrupt corporations and, and you know inflated salaries of all these executives while they've been inflating their numbers. But at the same time, 
because they've been firing everybody. I mean, every I'm on the board of directors of a billion revenue staffing agency, and I can see it. Every Fortune 500 company is laying off people. So, so what's going to happen? Their profits are going to go up, and it's scary if you're somewhere in that middle management, lower management area. But if you're choosing yourself, if you're trying to find your own entrepreneurial way through this mess, you're going to succeed. Will the markets continue? Of course, because the more they fire, the higher profits are going to go. And let's let's just add, stocks are not expensive. Exxon, Microsoft, Apple, these are the biggest companies in the world, and they're all trading for something like 10 times next year's earnings and with janet yellen taking over as the federal reserve chairman she's going to keep on inflating the inflating the market keep on printing money you know i used to know a guy who um had a really good copy machine and he would he knew he couldn't print up hundred dollar bills on this copy machine because people check for that stuff you know they look it up they act like experts they look in the light oh is there is there a little mark here or not but five dollar bills ten dollar bills twenty dollar bills no one checks so this guy would print up twenty dollar bills and spend them at all the local restaurants and local delis and so on whenever i had to shop in any of those local delis if they wanted to give me change in ten dollar bills i would say no thanks because i didn't want any of his extra money but what he did was he artificially inflated the local economy on this block just like Janet Yellen is going to start artificially inflating our economy. So what happens when you fire everybody, but all the money flows into corporate profits? The stock market goes up. So all of this is a simple way of saying, turn off the TV. Turn off all the financial news. Shut down the Wall Street Journal. All of that stuff is useless. And I'm going I'm to tell you why it's useless. I'm taking a look right now at the, the most boring magazine on the planet. You probably know what I'm referring to. Uh, it's called The Economist. And I'm taking a look at the table of contents. Let me read you some of this table of contents. Energy in Mexico. Make or break for Peña Nieto. Uh, China. Keeping watch. Uh, reincarnation at Nokia. Planning the next bounce back. Oh, here's a great title. Very large planes. Airbus's big bet. This is the most boring magazine in the world. I hope none of you ever read that magazine. Instead, let's take a look at a much more interesting magazine, Cosmopolitan. I'm going to get into Cosmopolitan right now and read some of their table of contents, which is much more fascinating reading. Cats plus bachelors equals catchlers. Hot men and the cats who like them. 25 Habits of Truly Lazy 20-somethings. Is sex just about the orgasm? If Christian group is mad about our feminist porn article. Seven sad but true reasons women fake orgasms. So now here you wonder, why is Cosmopolitan more popular than The Economist? I just gave you the reason. And this is also the reason why you should totally ignore the market. The market's probably going to keep on going up, but be very worried about your job. This is James, James Altucher covering for Porter Stansbury while he's off living the high life in Singapore. And I'm here suffering in the rain on radio with you, helping you survive these markets. Goodbye and good luck.
Stansberry Radio is a purely public broadcast and is not intended to be personalized financial advice for any individual's specific situation. Each individual's financial situation is unique, and Stansberry Radio should not be relied upon and or considered as personalized advice. Stansberry Radio is not licensed to render personalized advice and should be considered simply the public opinions of Stansberry Radio and its guests. Recommendations on specific financial securities are not intended to address any listener's particular financial situation. Dental Associates of Northern Virginia redefine what it means to visit the dentist. Get top quality personalized support from committed experts who prioritize the well-being and satisfaction of you and your family. Care is centered on a highly personalized treatment plan backed by the trust and support of long-lasting relationships. Schedule your next appointment by visiting dental1-va.com/offer/siriusxm.